John chapter 5, verses 31 to 47. This is God's word. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the words that the Father has given, for the works rather, that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe in his, believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is God's word. Let me quickly pray. Father, help us right now to open our eyes so that we may see wonderful things in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are still in this scene through chapter 5, where Jesus is defending himself against the Jews, mostly the uh, religious leaders, mostly when John uses the term Jews, it's uh, a combination of the Pharisees, uh, some Sadducees, mostly just the religious leaders, those who are in the sphere of influence. And Jesus is defending himself uh, against these leaders who cannot accept that he is equal with God. Remember verse 18, we read, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And Jesus has just explained uh, throughout the preceding verses how everything that he does flows from this relationship that he has with the Father, this uh, unity with him so that he can't do a single thing except that which comes from the Father. There is this beautiful unity and Jesus is perfectly revealing the Father as the Son because of this unity. And now in verse 31, Jesus uh, is beginning to give uh, more of his defense in the um, way of these witnesses. So there are these witnesses that are testifying that Jesus is the Son of God. And the first witness that Jesus gives here is a bit of a uh, legal defense. So in verse 31, Jesus says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. 
Now, we know that Jesus' testimony would be perfectly true. If he testified about himself, he can't say anything that is not true. So his witness, of course, is true. But Jesus here, just for a moment, is entering into this uh, legal sphere where a person cannot become their own witness. And that's what he's doing here. That's why he says, uh, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. That is according to this legal framework of the day where things had to be established by other witnesses. So here for just a moment, Jesus is satisfying the world's requirements for witnesses other than himself. Just like we have today, if you're signing a document and you need a witness, you of course can't be the one who signs and then the one who witnesses. You need someone else to witness the document. And here for a moment, Jesus is entering into this legal framework. And he is saying, there is another who is my witness. There's another who is witnessing. That is John the Baptist. So in verse 33, Jesus reminds them, you, you Jews, you sent to John. Remember that. I wonder if you can remember that back in chapter one, all the way back in verse 19 of chapter one. We read then that the Jews sent priests and Levites to John the Baptist to basically ask, hey, who are you and what are you doing? You're clearly significant. You're attracting all of these followers. So who are you? And remember what John the Baptist says. He gives this answer where he says, I am not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. He's a voice preparing for the Messiah. And then remember John right after this sees Jesus coming and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus here is saying to the Jews, Hey, remember that? Remember when you sent for John and he testified about me? Remember that? Well, he's my witness. And, and we know that everything he says is true. I mean, when Jesus says here, he was a burning and shining lamp in verse 35, that's like Jesus saying to them, John was no chump. I mean, he was very significant. He had a whole bunch of followers. Remember other times in the gospel accounts, the people are, or the Jews are scared of saying anything against John the Baptist because everyone reveres him as a prophet. So he is a significant person. And Jesus is saying, there's a witness. He is testifying about me. And in verse 34, Jesus reminds them that he doesn't even need this. He's just entering into this legal framework just for a moment to satisfy the world's requirements. But he says in verse 34, I don't actually need this. I don't need anyone to testify about me. This is so that you may be saved. Now, that's Jesus giving his legal defense, the sort of natural defense, if you will. But now, and this is going to be the main part of our passage today, he goes into this even greater defense. He goes into this divine and supernatural defense. So from verse 36, he gives these three witnesses, these three divine witnesses, and a little bit like the Trinity being one God in three persons, these witnesses all come from the one source. They have the one divine source, that is the works the works of God, the works that Jesus is doing, the Father himself, and then the scriptures. There are three distinct witnesses that are uh, indivisible from each other, and they can't be separated 
They are from the one source, but yet they are distinguishable. There's the works, and then the Father, and then the Scriptures. So firstly, the works. Let's look at verse 36. Jesus says here, But the testimony that I have, in contrast to John the Baptist, is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Jesus, by this stage, has already turned the water into wine, performed a great miracle. He has already healed a young boy, remember in chapter 4, without even being in the physical location of him. Just from a, a complete distance, his voice, his word, heals this young boy. And then after this, he heals the man of 38 years of debilitating sickness, this likely paralytic, walks and Jesus heals him. And Jesus here is speaking in present tense, the works that I am doing. Jesus will go on in the very next chapter to feed the 5,000, probably more than 5,000, with the five loaves of bread and the two fish. And he will then go on in John 11 to raise the dead. These are the works. These are the works that God alone can do. Charlatans and Satan himself cannot perform miracles. They can perform counterfeit tricks. They can't perform miracles. Jesus alone can do this. So he's saying these works are works that God alone can do. They are ultimately from God. Everything from raising the dead to healing sickness is pointing to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, doing the very works of God that are bearing witness that he is the Son of God. Now that's the first. The second witness here is the Father himself in verses 37 to 38. Jesus says, and the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Keep in mind, he's still talking to the Jews here. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. So what is this witness? What is the witness of the father? Some people uh, think that this may be referring to uh, the voice that you, some people hear of the Father, think of Jesus' baptism or the transfiguration. You hear, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Now, I'm not sure that's uh, what Jesus is referring to here, particularly uh, because none of those are recorded in the Gospel of John. So it may not be particularly in John's framework here, though it's true that that is the Father witnessing. But I believe from the context, and this is where we have to pay attention, from the context here... The witness of the Father is where the Father himself testifies that Jesus is his Son by drawing and illuminating people to Jesus. The witness of the Father is where the Father himself testifies that Jesus is his Son by drawing and illuminating people to Jesus so that people see him as the Messiah. In the very next chapter, this will become very, very clear when we go through chapter 6. In chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. No one. This can't happen unless the Father is drawing this person. The Father has to initiate this. So the Father drawing people to the Son in order that they see that he is the Christ becomes the Father testifying that Jesus is the Christ. He's drawing them to say, Hey, here's my Son, my representative. Look upon him See that he is the Messiah. That is the Father testifying. We can see this because of the context. Remember, Jesus is talking to the Jews. 
Look at what Jesus says here in verse 37. He's talking to the Jews and he says, His voice, the Father's voice, you have never heard. His form, you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you. Jesus is speaking to these Jews who do not believe in him. They are dead. They are spiritually dead. The Jews who do not believe that he is the Christ. Whereas in contrast to this, the Father is bearing witness, even at this stage, because there are people who are hearing the voice of Jesus. The disciples themselves will go on in chapter 6 to say, you have the words of eternal life. We've heard your voice. You have the words of eternal life. Effectively, you are the word of God. There are people who are seeing that Jesus is the Messiah, whose eyes have been illuminated so that they see that this is the Messiah. They see what Jesus is saying when he says to Philip, have you seen me? You've seen the Father. And there are, of course, people believing that he is the Messiah and having his word abiding in them. And these are the ones, these are the people that the Father is drawing to the Son so that that becomes the testimony. The Father draws them to the Son to say, hey, here's my Son. Here's my chosen representative. God of very God. Believe in Him. That becomes the Father's witness. But these Jewish leaders do not have this testimony. They have not seen this witness, though it is clear to others. They have not seen it because they are dead. They do not believe in the one whom the Father has sent. And this leads us to the final witness. And this is where we're going to camp out for most of today. Jesus gives one final aspect of the divine witness, which then becomes one major rebuke to these Jews. These are the, the scriptures themselves. This is from verse 39 onwards. So this is the third and final divine witness, the scriptures. The scriptures which the Jews study so diligently point to Jesus as the Messiah, and yet they completely miss this. So notice verse 39. Jesus says, You, you Jews, you search the Scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me, so that you may have life. The Jewish leaders were notoriously diligent in their study of the scriptures. There was a rabbi of the time who literally said, the more study of the law, the more life. The more you study the law, that's where life is found. The more life you will have. Now let's be clear on the major issue here. So what is the major issue that Jesus is getting at? When he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them, they have eternal life. Firstly, the major issue is not diligent study of scripture. That's not what Jesus is rebuking. He's not rebuking them because they diligently study Scripture. So let's just uh, lose that now because I don't know about you, I've come across people before who have uh, been quite lazy in their Bible reading, to be honest, and when they come across someone who seems to have a desire, a hunger for the Word of God, they usually turn to this passage and say, oh, you search the Scriptures because in them you think they, that you have eternal life. Now, Jesus is not rebuking diligent study of Scripture. We are to meditate upon the law of the Lord day and night. We must be meditating upon this. So that's not the issue. The issue is their reasons for diligent study of Scripture. The issue is their approach to the study of Scriptures. That's what's going on here. They are looking to diligent study of Scripture as an end in and of itself. That's the goal, to be a diligent studier of Scripture. That's the goal. And that's the issue that Jesus is addressing here. They think that eternal life comes from simply believing 
uh, that they are a diligent study of studier of Scripture. But you can, of course, spend 80 years, if you get that, 80 years diligently studying Scripture and you will wind up in hell if your approach was wrong from the start. You will wind up in hell if your approach is to be someone who simply knows the Scriptures for your own sake rather than for God's sake. That's a path of destruction. It's the wrong foundation, and the Jews here have the wrong foundation. They have the wrong approach to Scripture. They fail to realize that the very Scriptures that they are studying so diligently are pointing them to the Christ who is standing right before them. And there is something at the very core of this problem that we must realize. There is something at the very core of this problem that is consistent throughout every generation, throughout every faith tradition, because it's a human problem. The problem here at the core is the problem of pride. That's the issue here, the problem of pride. Notice that Jesus says, It is the scriptures that bear witness of me, yet you refuse to come to me. You refuse to come to me. There's a stubbornness. There's a pridefulness in your hearts. There is a stubborn refusal to see the trajectory of Scripture, which points to Jesus, and it stems from pride. Now, what is it that makes this a pride issue? I believe at the core of their approach to Scripture is a desire to cling to their life. That's what's going on here. At the core of their approach to Scripture is a desire to cling to their life. They don't want the life that Jesus gives. They are trying to cling to their life. And they cling to their life because they assume that life will be found in their ability to know and keep God's word. That's where they think life is found. And it's really them clinging to their life. It's really them clinging to their ability to know and keep the word of God. That's something within their control. We can see this. We can see this through the um, lives of many of the Pharisees of the time because their study of Scripture doesn't lead them to a place of humility or grief over sin. Their study of Scripture doesn't lead them to a place of humility like we see in Isaiah, in Isaiah 6, where he just says, I am undone. Woe is me, I'm unclean. Or Job, repenting in dust and ashes. Or Josiah, when he finds the law and he tears his robes. The Pharisees never do that. It never leads them to that place unless they're putting on a show for people. It never leads them to humility or grief over sin. Rather, because their approach is one of pride and control, what it leads them to is to manipulate God's word, to add to it, to add on these man-made traditions that become an impossible burden for others to keep, to keep them under that and to remain in their place of being the keepers of the law. It's a prideful approach, like we saw in the very last chapter of them accusing the man who had been healed of 38 years of debilitating sickness. Maybe the first time he walked in 38 years and immediately they come and say, hey, why are you breaking the Sabbath? That's their approach. It's one of pride. It's one of uh, domineering over others. Pride is at the core of this issue, which is precisely why they refuse to come to Jesus. And he is addressing that. Now, If pride is at the core of the issue, if pride is the problem, then it shouldn't be too difficult for us to see how this manifests among every uh, faith tradition, every denomination throughout all history. This is one that shows no partiality 
to particular groups of Christians. But let's start in our own circles. If we think about those within more of a, a reformed conservative movement, those who do rightly love the word of God, it's quite easy for us to see how dangerous it could be for those of us in reformed circles to assume that life is found in a deeper understanding of all of the beautiful doctrines of reformed theology. It's quite easy for us to see the danger in this. Things like our understanding of the doctrines of grace or the pactum salutis, the covenant of redemption, even using those words or even turning to the Greek for a moment so that we can give a definition of a word in the Greek that's already perfectly well translated in English, but we like to show that we have superior knowledge. We, let's be honest, love this sort of thing. We love a deep understanding of theology, which is not a bad thing in and of itself. Let's be very clear. But we can see the danger in going into that place in having this approach, which has a lot of similarities to the prideful approach we see in the Jewish leaders, of wanting to have this superior knowledge of life being found in the one who holds all of the keys to understanding Scripture. And that's a real danger for someone like me, that I could have all of this, this deep understanding of these doctrines and use the Latin terms so that I just do a power play on you to make sure I'm asserting my authority. And I can be this guy who really finds life in being the one who knows all of this. And that's a really dangerous path. It is an approach which seeks to know Scripture solely for our sake rather than for God's sake. And for his people. It's a selfish approach. Why is it that Paul said to the Corinthians, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, we don't have time to look into the context of that, which I think is very helpful. But it clearly wasn't that Paul decided when he said, I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. It wasn't like Paul decided that a robust understanding of theology was unimportant. They said, you know what? I've just wasted my life. It's only about Jesus. Like there's a lot of people now who say it's just about the gospel and they end up reducing everything and you have to then work out what gospel they're talking about. Paul obviously isn't saying that a robust understanding of theology is unimportant. But if we can just take a, 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 an application of what he says there in light of this theme, if your robust understanding of theology does not lead you to be in awe of Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sin, then your theology is wrong and it's worthless. If it does not lead you to be in awe of Jesus Christ and him crucified for your sin, then you're on the wrong track. Your approach is off. So for us, our rich and robust understanding of these doctrines, which we should desire must lead us to the Christ of our salvation. It must lead us to humility, to be in awe. So much so, it should really lead us on our knees in humility so that we could have deep fellowship. I mean deep and rich fellowship with another brother or sister who knows next to nothing about eschatological positions, but who adores Jesus Christ. And we can experience a rich and deep communion with that brother or sister, much more so than the scholar who puts Calvin to shame with his intellectual prowess, but displays no awe for Christ and no humility. That becomes a bit of a repellent to God's people. 
Because God looks upon those who have a broken and contrite spirit. These he will never despise. Likewise, God's people are drawn to those who are broken and contrite and who adore Jesus Christ, who love Jesus Christ. And that must be displayed in humility and contrition toward Christ and his word. Now, that's within our circles. If I can just give a few examples of other ways that this prideful, misguided approach to the truths of Scripture manifests itself. See, at at the core of the problem, or rather if the core of the problem is pride and a desire to cling to one's life by reducing following God's word down to things within their control, then really we see this everywhere, especially in our modern day. We see this in the outrageous, relativistic, completely subjective versions of Christianity, which often use language like, well, that's not the Jesus that I worship. My Jesus is inclusive of all peoples. You know, if if that's your idea of Jesus, then that's not my Jesus. It's this weird subjective thing. You completely undercut the objective truth of Scripture. And it displays a prideful arrogance. It actually displays the same thing. Ironically, those who call everyone else Pharisees become the most Pharisaical because it, it displays the same prideful arrogance in coming over God's word, in coming over God's word and manipulating it. These people assume that they have the answers of life already worked out. So where God's word seems to be displaying something contrary, naturally God's word must be wrong. My thoughts couldn't be wrong, so we need to find a way to fit God's word within my view. That's this subjective relativistic Christianity, and it's the same pride pride that is at the core of it. We can also see this in the all-too-common culture of our day of moralistic therapeutic deism, if you've ever heard of that. This is rampant throughout the Western church. It's basically where Uh, The moralism is where you reduce your Christian life down to this base level of morality. So basically, don't have sex before marriage, don't swear, attend church on Sundays, these sorts of things. And if you're doing this, then you're doing pretty well. And you just have to meet that bar of morality. And then the therapy becomes where you do this in a really individualistic way where it's sort of this form of therapy. So gatherings are where you're just massaging your spiritual needs. It's soothing your desires rather than calling you to a costly, sacrificial discipleship. It's really there as a form of therapy for you and your individual needs. And then the subconscious understanding uh, under this is that God is not all that interested in your life Monday through Saturday. Like God's really not all that interested in your life when you go, when you're in the workplace on a Monday morning or when you're uh, at drinks with Tuesday night uni friends or something like that. It's this subtle idea, this deistic idea that God's not actually involved in that part of your life. This is the moralistic therapeutic deism. And all of this, here's the thing, all of this is really designed to keep God at arm's length. It's a prideful approach. It's actually there to keep God out of your life. So if you meet these moral requirements and you're doing it in a therapeutic way and God's really not all that interested in the rest of your life, then you can just sort of pay him off. You can give him your Sunday, give him a portion of your life, and then he can't ask too much of you. It's actually there to keep God at arm's length. It's a refusal to come to him. 
And that's why it is totally similar to what's going on here with the Jews who refused to come to Christ. It gives the appearance of Christianity, but it's actually there to keep Christ out of your life. He doesn't have complete dominion or authority over your life. It is Christ-less because it is a life that has not found the Christ who demands absolute allegiance over every area of your life and who is worthy of losing everything for the sake of him. People who have succumbed to that version of false Christianity have not come to the genuine Christ who demands allegiance to him. So whether it is liberal, subjective approaches or secular New Age approaches or or, or even conservative approaches, the danger is where it becomes Christ-less Christianity Because we refuse to come to the true Christ, just like the Jews were doing. They refused to come to him. They were attempting to find their own path within their control to find life. They are clinging to their life, clinging to their own lives by thinking that their ability to know and keep God's law is what brings them life. Pride is the issue. And here's the thing, they have no desire to come to Christ because to come to Christ requires that we abandon every prideful attempt to find life according to our terms. Coming to Christ requires that we abandon every single prideful attempt to find life according to our terms. It pushes us into the place of complete vulnerability, complete submission in humility to him. And this is precisely where life is found. Life is found in accepting our complete inability to find life and seeing Christ's complete ability to give us life. That's where life is found. And this is where the scriptures naturally lead us when we come in humility. They actually thrust us deeper into this place of having an insatiable desire to know and worship Christ who gives abundant life. And here's the thing. Scripture must remain the objective standard by which we come to know and worship Christ. This is why no one can use this passage to sort of say, don't worry about studying Scripture. Because Scripture must remain the objective standard for how we then come to know and worship Christ. Scripture pushes us into that. Otherwise, the whole thing collapses. So Jesus is not telling us here to turn away from Scripture. Rather, he is calling us to see the proper end of Scripture, which is him, to see Christ. The deeper we study Scripture, the more we see Christ, the more we see of Christ, the more we grow in humble gratitude, the more we grow in contrition. That's the natural pattern. And this is the total opposite direction of the prideful entitlement that we see in these examples, which try and come over the Word of God to cater your Christianity to your needs, to follow the natural path of scriptures, to see Christ, to see Christ is then to grow in humble gratitude. So the final thrust of this passage, as we uh, look at the remainder of these verses from verses 41 onwards, the final thrust of this passage is actually the solution to the problem of pride that we see displayed in the Jews. And the final thrust is to see the proper end of Scripture, to see the proper goal of Scripture, which is to see Jesus 
as the fulfillment and centerpiece of God's redemptive promises that had been given all the way throughout Scripture from as early as Genesis. So this is what Jesus is pointing to the Jews here as we go through the remainder. So from verses 42 and uh, all the way to verse uh, 44, we see Jesus continuing this theme of demonstrating that the Scriptures point to him and that the Jews' problem is really one of pride and an unwillingness to submit to him as the Christ which Scripture points to. And in verses 42 and 43, uh, Jesus is... Uh, showing that he knows that the Jews don't really love him because they have not received him. That would be the indication that they actually uh, know and love him because they would receive him, but they have not. And then in verse 44, Jesus again points out that their hearts are pridefully stubborn because rather than giving glory where it rightly should go to, which is to God, They give glory to one another. This is what he says. You love receiving glory from one another. You're prideful at your core. You love receiving the glory from people when it should rightly go to God. And then in verse 45, he comes back to the witness of Scripture. And he reminds the Jews that the Scriptures that they have so diligently studied will in the end accuse them before God because Moses' writings... And what Jesus is saying are the very same source. That's what he's saying here when he says, if you do not believe his writings, this is verse 47, if you do not believe Moses, how will you believe me? We're the same source. I am the word of God. So their prideful approach has blinded them from seeing the beauty of Jesus as the end goal of what God was doing through Moses and the patriarchs. Now, let's just, as we finish, follow the flow of Jesus' words here so that we get the right thrust as well. Let's follow the flow of Jesus' words and recall just a little bit of what Moses actually wrote about. So Moses records all the way back in Genesis 3 that there would be a seed of the woman who would redeem what was lost when sin corrupted humanity and cast them out of God's presence. Of course, this is the fall And from that passage, we know that pain would have to be inflicted upon the seed. He would uh, crush the serpent, but the serpent would bruise his heel. There would be pain that would be inflicted upon this seed. And then the very next chapter, after the fall of mankind, we see the first offering that God accepts. The very first offering that God accepts after this is the firstborn from Abel's flock. The firstborn that Abel gives. So we see the themes of sacrifice immediately after the promise of salvation from sin. And then as we work our way through, we see all of the covenant promises that God gives to Abraham in Genesis 12, 15 and 17. These covenant uh, promises. And then we have this other picture of sacrifice in Genesis 22. After all of the covenants, after God saying, I will graciously come to you and make you a people. Then we see in Genesis 22, Abraham being called to take his firstborn, in the sense of the right firstborn son, and sacrifice him. But in the end, God provides a substitute. He provides a lamb in his place. So we're seeing these clear themes coming together. And then... A large chunk of Moses' writings is to do with detailing the tabernacle, which shows that God's desire is to dwell among his people. And then we have all of the various aspects of the sacrificial system, like the Passover lamb, which averts the wrath of God. 
And then in Deuteronomy 18, and this is just to take like the cliff notes, the highlights version of it, we have in Deuteronomy 18, Moses saying, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, another prophet like me from among you. And then listen to the description of the prophet. God says, I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak all that I command him. That sounds awfully familiar to what Jesus says about speaking the very words of God and of doing all that the Father commands of me. So without even turning to the servant songs in Isaiah or the many prophecies through the prophets, we already see a clear picture of Jesus as the end goal of this story. He follows these themes so perfectly. He becomes the firstborn sacrifice. He becomes the lamb slain for the sins of God's people. He, after thinking about all of the ideas of the tabernacle, he pitches his tent and tabernacles among us, John records in his first chapter. Jesus speaks the very words of God and does all that the Father commands of him, just as the prophet was foretold would do. And just as God said of that prophet back in Deuteronomy 18, whoever does not listen to the words of the prophet, I will require it of him. We've just seen those themes in the passage we went over a few weeks ago where Jesus says, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father. We see the father giving the son and saying, you must give the son the exact honor that you would give to me. He is my chosen representative. And if you do not, I will require it of you. He will judge you. So everything was pointing to Jesus as the Christ. This is the thrust of Scripture. And as we finish and as we think about what our main takeaway from this is, for us as a community of followers of Jesus, everything we do must ultimately thrust us deeper in our knowledge, worship and service of Jesus Christ. Or we're completely missing the point. Everything that we do must thrust us deeper in our knowledge, worship and service of Jesus Christ. Everything flows from that. And therefore, we have to be aware of every prideful attempt to find life, to find that life in some other way. Just like the Pharisees, just like the Jews were doing. Whether for us, this is in attempts to find life in a deep and robust understanding of theology, a really intricate understanding, and you think that your life is found in that. You actually form an identity around being the guy who can turn to the Hebrew to give you the special knowledge. That's a really dangerous thing. We must be aware of that. We must be aware of any attempt to find a different route to following Jesus that suits our comfort. This is, of course, one of the major issues of seeker-sensitive churches where it's built around comfort and the need of consumers. That's not the path of life. The path of life is to lay down those comforts, to lay aside those preferences in order to follow Jesus Christ. We must be aware of busying ourselves with so many things. We have to be aware of busying ourselves with so many things, whether they be ministry roles, social events, mindless entertainment. This is the danger of our day, of just busying ourselves, being preoccupied with all of these things that we simply do not give ourselves the chance to sit at the feet of Jesus, 
to realise that he is the strength of our heart. He is our portion forever. That beautiful thing that we get out of the story of Mary and Martha, of Martha distracted by much serving. Serving is not bad, but if it is at the expense of you being able to sit at the feet of Jesus, then it is. So everything must be leading us toward that. We must be aware of every prideful attempt to find life some other way, which in the end becomes a refusal to come to Christ. And there is only one way to life that we have very clearly seen. There is only one way. It is to lay aside all of this. It is to lay aside every prideful preference, to lay aside all selfish ambition and come in humility to the Christ that Scripture points us to. And as we diligently study Scripture, we see, we see that Scripture is pointing us, it is even propelling us forward to a life of complete and joyful submission to Jesus Christ. It is propelling us forward to a deeper knowledge of Jesus Christ as the one in whom are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge and by whom the very universe is upheld. This is what Scripture is pointing us to, to just know this Christ. It's propelling us forward to lay everything bare in absolute humility, to lay everything bare before our Saviour, to abandon every ounce of self-righteousness in order to receive the righteousness of Christ that becomes our very own. This must propel us to the point where we can say... Like Paul, I consider everything loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Paul doesn't have a monopoly on that statement. That's something that we should all hold dear to consider everything else as loss in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And if we are not being led to this place, If we are not being led to this place as a community and individually as we study Scripture, then we have to re-examine and realign our approach in order to come to this place where we rightly see Christ as the end goal of everything, as the trajectory of all of our life. Every minute in this life of ours is working toward this end goal of beholding Christ our Saviour. And our whole lives are preparation for that moment training ground for that moment so our lives ought to be built around this trajectory being thrust into this trajectory to see christ as the end goal of everything to see him and to savor him and as a community to stir each other on to that end so that we would not be like the the jews who refuse to come to christ but everything we do would just be pushing us deeper into knowing and worshipping and serving Jesus Christ.